This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Welcome into the latest edition of the Detroit Sports Podcast. This is the one-on-one interview segment where athletes, media members come in and share stories regarding their path to success, where they currently are, current projects. And today, I'm thankful Andy Dirks, former Detroit Tiger, former Toronto Blue Jay. He responded to my message on Facebook, and I'm thankful he's here today to share some stories regarding his career, current endeavors, and the mental side of the game. I loved hearing you on different podcasts and talking about your stories and your journey and the path that you took to get to the majors and the path that you are on now in terms of building new new ventures. Amazing. Welcome, Andy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I think what you're doing here is really good. Uh, like we just discussed, it's uh, something that you're passionate about, obviously. And I love it when people just reach out to me that are like-minded, that are enthused about the game, that are enthused about helping people and, and telling stories. It's amazing. At the same time now, you're also hosting a podcast, the Get Your Game Right podcast. How did that start up, and what is the content of that podcast? Yeah, so Get Your Game Right was an idea that I actually had uh, a little over a year ago, two years ago. Uh, I I was kind of forced out of of baseball due to injury, which everybody that plays sports at any level, eventually you're no longer able to play, whether it's injury or your age or something. So there's always a time, eventually you're going to be done. It took me about a year to kind of transition from understanding, okay, I'm done playing baseball. Now what do I want to do? I started a real estate business that's really taken off and and been very successful for me. So I'm thankful for that. And then on the baseball side, you know, really, if I look back at my career, things that that took me to the next level, uh, it wasn't always just my skill set. A lot of it was the mindset, the mental aspects of the game, the way I could use what skill I did have to maximize the talent by understanding the game and understanding ways to be very, very successful and 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 being able to continue progress forward. So when when the whole thing came to play, I sat down and I said, you know, I started talking to other guys and they had the same revolution. It was like, yeah, you know, really, there was guys who were better than me, the Donnie Kellys of the world, the, the guys like me that that didn't make it, that stayed in the minor leagues. And nobody's ever even heard of. Why is that? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's the mindset it overcomes some deficiency in skill. And there's guys who who are very skilled that if you don't understand that and have a lack of confidence for whatever reason with that skill set, they're not going to be able to produce as well as somebody with a lesser skill set who has some confidence. What was your mindset that you said to yourself, okay, I got to work the hardest? What would you share with our audience in terms of what was the mindset that you could describe uh, attributed to yourself? On a daily basis, what I figured out is if I was very consistent at what I did on a daily basis, I'm talking like break it down to when I get to the field in the morning uh, to my pregame routines, and I could break it down and have a conscious, consistent thought that was very simple and repeatable. That's how I overcame a lot of my skill set deficiency. Because I knew if I did a certain task consistently and did it the same way every time, and it was a productive mind task, over time, that would produce good results. You don't always see them immediately. For me, say uh, hitting was obviously is one of the tougher uh, challenges mentally in all of sports. 
there's a lot of failure that comes with it. There's uh, not a lot of gratification at times, even when you're doing the right things. So I, I broke down hitting to a very simple thought process of, okay, if I can just hit the ball back through the middle, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a success. So I had a lot less failure that way. So even if I hit a hard ground ball to second or shortstop, it was still a success. It was an out on paper, but I knew if I did that continually over and over and over, the results are in, in the end are going to be better than if I'm just up there without a, a, a thought at all. In working with athletes, especially baseball players, um, it's really interesting. Everybody says, hey, baseball is a game of failure. If you hit the ball three out of ten times, it's a success. And so that's why the mental side of baseball is so fascinating to look at, and I'm going to enjoy the conversation with you as well because of the fact that, yes, it's a constant grind over the course of a season, um, adjusting to pitchers, uh, the, the failures of the game. Sometimes you feel like you hit the ball in a perfect spot, and it's an out. And you just got to constantly repeat and continue to have a positive mindset to keep going and to continue to strive for goals, especially in a game where there's so much failure. Yeah, you got to break it down to understanding that really three out of ten times in the big leagues you're a Hall of Famer. There's no way around it if you play long enough. But you really need to succeed probably seven out of ten times. So really it's not a failure sport. If you look at it, with, if you take it to the approach of I need to have seven really good at bats to get my three hits or get my two, two and a half hits, you know, to hit 250. You can't just uh, wing it and say, well, if I hit three balls hard, I'm going to get three hits. It just does not work that way. You're going to have quality at bats, and I break a quality at bat down into a different uh, aspects. A lot of guys do it a little differently. I think, you know, if, if you're seeing a lot of pitches and you have a really nice at bat, but you end up striking out, the pitcher got you. The pitcher's going to get you three times in the big leagues, three out of ten. They're just going to throw you a nasty pitch and it's going to strike you out or you're going to make it take a bad swing on a change up and pop it up. But the other seven at bats need to be there, right? So you're not giving those away. That's just the pitcher was that good and got you out. The other seven, when he does make a mistake, you need to, to, to put a good swing on it and mm. put it into play hard somewhere. And out of those seven, the problem in the big leagues is defenders get better. So every level, that's, that's the biggest change. As you go up level to level, other guys are getting better. Hits are harder to get. So you really have to keep that fundamental mindset. And especially for young kids, I see them really – everybody loves stats of baseball. I think it's great. It's a great way for fans to interact in the game. Statistics are, are very cool, very important. The analytics stuff now is cool. You see the, the uh, exit velocity off the bat. Those are all great things to keep the game running and keep it entertaining. But for a kid watching the game and he sees somebody hitting 300 – if you have a very short sample size, which most of the times you do when you're young, you know, you might have 10 at bats and one kid's hitting 500 and one kid's hitting 200. I mean, the difference could have been just luck. So for a kid to understand, really, it's more about a process. It's more about attaching to a process and their development as opposed to the stats that will come over time. And the Get Your Game Right podcast, how often is it recorded? How often do you release it? I try to get one a week out. So on top of the podcast, where we basically are building a ton of content uh, that will be available to the public shortly. If you go to any of my social media outlets or go to getyourgameright.com, there's a Slump Buster Toolkit is kind of our first little product that I put out. It's a very simple way, uh, simple thinking mindset to if you are in a slump or you're struggling to whatever extent, it's a quick way to get, it, get out of it. Uh, it's things that I used, other guys have used, I stole from them, and it's something I wish that I would have put together while I was playing because I would forget these things these simple aspects that would get me out of the slump. And then it would take me a while to remember them all and actually apply them. So I put it, put it in one little spot. 
But we're, this is just scratching the surface. I got uh, Brent Kimnitz uh, was the pitching coach at Wichita State for 38 years. He's the winningest D1 pitching coach of all time, and he's big on mindset, and he's going to be the pitching guy. Charlie O'Brien right now uh, is our tentative catching guy. He caught parts, basically 13 Cy Young Award winners over his career. You know, they weren't Cy Youngs every all those years, but over time, Maddox, Clavin, all these different guys. What's your current mindset now in building businesses? Obviously, you said now you're working in real estate. You're also building your game in the podcast world and also now wanting to work with kids and also helping them to get their mindset right. So where are you currently at in terms of now the development stage of businesses? So basically, I've taken the same approach to my business as I did uh, with my baseball career. Understanding now that I can look back on it that it is a process. There's no such thing as uh, just instant gratification and immediate success for things that are worthwhile. It took me six months to get my first sale in real estate. Part of that is was because I wanted to understand the ins and outs, every little aspect to do a really good job for clients. When I once I got them, I think part of that's kind of my my prior background as an athlete. We like to be prepared. That's what breeds confidence. That preparation. Uh, going into something, if you're well prepared, take a kid that's taking a math exam. The kid who studied is way more confident and happy to go take that test. The kid who didn't is freaking out. So I wanted to not be the kid that was freaking out. I wanted the kid that had the confidence going in to do a really great job for my first few clients. And so I took the approach of I'm going to learn it as much as I can and then continue to learn as I go because some of it you're just going to learn just from going through transactions and deals, but always being on top and, and always actively striving to learn as opposed to wait till something bad happens, then learn from that mistake. I like to be a, a try to be uh, advanced and say, how about I understand this concept before it happens? Exactly. And one of the important things I think that you also are doing as well is setting goals and short-term goals, long-term goals. I tell everybody it's really important to have a vision. And sometimes when you're starting off a project or you're starting off, a, like let's say, a podcast and the first episode maybe only gets like 15 views and not a lot of interaction, you want to still have that long-term vision of, okay, what does this look like? And that's how this podcast has come to be and to be formed into a network where we're media credentialed. And part of it is to too, I tell people is that the way you handle failures is so important. Does it knock you down? Does it make you feel like you want to quit? And for us and the network, the more failure, the more pushback we got, the harder we worked. And that's what I tell people in what we did in terms of trying to contact PR staffs. Um, we were talking before um, this podcast that you know we tried to get credentialed all the way back in 2014. And it took us a year to get a reply. Not a no, not an official yeah. denial. <laughs> a one year to get a reply back to say, hey, what are you guys about? What is this request? That What is this all about? And so it started from there and we kept emailing. We didn't give up because we had that vision of like, okay, we think we can do it. We have something to give. We have something to offer. And handling failures, making goals, really important in terms of development. Without a doubt, the difference between the successful people or anybody that's successful at anything is they stuck with it. And not only did they stick with it, they learned as they were moving forward and a lot of times you got to be very careful. And I see this with former athletes a lot when they get into their next venture is it's hard to strip down that pride a little bit to say, you know what? I don't know it all because you, if you end your career at the highest level possible, and then you're starting something new, you have to really humble yourself and, and cut that pride down and say, Hey, these people know more than I do. I need to learn from them quickly to get up to a level in that profession. Right. Just like with my get your game, right. I, it's a great idea. This is a great concept. It's going to help a ton of people. But I need to know how to build it from 
what people want. I can sit down and say, hey, I know everything about baseball, which is not true. And and I could go at it with the mindset of it's my way or the highway. But in reality, I want to give people information that is useful to them in their current situation. And you said it took six months for your first sale in real estate. Yeah. I'm certain that that first sale, when everything was done, paperwork signed, ink dry, it felt good knowing that, hey, I put in a lot of work. I always tell people, without six, without uh, failure, you can't really enjoy the fruits of your labor and have the ultimate pride when you have that success. That first sale must have felt great when you made that deal and uh, sold that first property or when the transaction was closed. It, it's There's a difference between happiness and fulfillment. Mm-hmm. You know, and then investment and happenstance. So when I talk about investment, the more you invest into something, like with your podcast and your show and my my ventures as well, the more we have invested in that, and the harder we're working at it, and the more we're developing, when a good result does come, that's fulfillment. Because you've put the time and effort into it. Happiness, and, and I deal with this with a lot with the youths, uh, and even parents to a point. I mean, it's easy to, we like that instant gratification that feel good in the moment. That's why we're consumers. We like to buy stuff. The new pair of Nikes makes me feel good. It's only short-term stuff with kids. I see it, uh, you know, in video games and things like that. And I don't have a problem with, with entertainment. I love entertainment. I think it's very good part of our society, but at the same time, there are things such as sports, uh, such as working hard to achieve something that you don't see the result of until later and sticking with a process without knowing how exactly it's going to work out, but knowing if I just keep at it and keep working hard at it and keep developing and maybe change a strategy here or there along the way, but we have those basic goals and ideas that are all pushing towards that end result. And then you get your credentialed uh, media pass or whatever. It's like, yeah, exactly. You know? It was unbelievable. The feeling I had walking into a press box. Exactly. It's just it, all the struggle. You look back and you reflect on what you did, the the constant and the perception really of what's a podcast. So to tell people, look, we're, you know, broadcasting similar to anybody else. We just do it over the Internet. And everybody that works with us is trained. They're trained in the field of journalism. It's just our outlet is is different. And telling people, you know, changing perceptions of a podcast as being non-traditional five years later, because back in 2013, there weren't many podcasts in Detroit that were pumping out weekly content, that were doing studio shows, and that were doing great quality interviews in the world of Detroit sports. So we were kind of trendsetters in that sense. And then now where it is where athletes like yourself who are now transitioning can also find a podcast as a way to share what they're doing now, as a way to also build their businesses. So in five years, we've also seen the growth of podcasting. And it's fun to also be a trendsetter, to be say, hey, look, I'm a former athlete. I'm building a real estate business. I'm also trying to work with youth and teach them. So that more power to you and all the credit to uh, hopefully your, your venture's succeeding. It's going to be great. Yeah, we're ex- I'm excited about all assets of it. My real estate business is more of a structured business yep. as far as uh, a traditional right. approach yep. to making uh, a business, where the Get Your Game Right is kind of that newer, non-traditional approach where we're going to have video content. It's a service and uh, as a product, right? It's not like the traditional mindset of you either give a product, like we're not, uh, there's nobody in China making coffee mugs that we're about to sell. Also with the service side of it, I'm not going to sit down at your house and I'm not going to give hitting lessons. So it's kind of that new breed of instant access to information. So when somebody has a question, we have already heard that question, and we've produced the answer to it, and you can just go right there and find it. 
Now, transitioning to the end of your career, because your situation that occurred was you were basically, you know, 29 years old and you uh, had suffered two back surgeries and basically you were told, look, it's probably going to be a long road for you to come back. What was that like when you're an athlete trying to meet your goals, but then now you faced a physical roadblock in terms of continuing something that you were really passionate about? Yeah. After the first back surgery, everybody said, oh, it's not going to be a big issue. You'll just come back, have the back surgery. You're out for six weeks and you're back. I said, okay, cool. Uh, didn't go well. You know, had the back surgery, just felt awful. In baseball, in any sport, the, there is a degree. Every You're hurt off and on throughout your whole career and there's things, aches and pains you play through. But there is a point where you have to have your physicality to be able to perform especially on a daily basis in baseball. It's not like football where you can suck it up for a week and then you get a week off. Uh, baseball is one of those grinding sports. And then after I, I just after the first one, the rehab didn't, wasn't going well. And it was nobody's fault. It was just the way my body had healed and I had done enough damage to the nerves that they just weren't responding well. So then what they went back in and I re-herniated a disc again to do then another back surgery. And then that was kind of the sec- after the second one and I started doing my physical therapy and talking to the surgeon, he he basically alluded to the fact that, you know, three times and you're out. Gotcha. So you've done it twice. You do it a third time, we're going to have to completely fuse you, uh, you know, three or four vertebrae right in there. Uh, and it's going to affect your life dramatically for the rest of your life just because you're going to have rods in your back and, and, and things of that nature. And he said, you know, from what, what your body's already told us and what we're seeing, the, the way that uh, it's trying to heal – but it, you're not letting it. You're probably never going to get back to the level you were. And then that was a, a big like, okay, uh, baseball's probably done. You know, listening to a surgeon's advice, which I take professional advice and say, you're, I believe you. And just knowing the way my body feels, and I still don't feel great. Like day to day activities are fine, but I can tell I've had two back surgeries. So even the thought, I don't golf, I don't play softball. Like people are like, hey, you want to come on my softball team and play? I was like, if I could play on your softball team, I'd still be playing in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. But those are I was I I look at back at my career, and it took me about a year to kind of get over some of that resentment and like why me? life's not fair. That you know, we, we all want to fall into those traps. But now I look back and say, how how lucky was I to even be there? You know, to have the ability to play and then use that as a catalyst moving forward because. I did work hard at baseball. I worked very, very hard on it, and it took me a long time to get to where I wanted to be, and I learned a lot from actually learning how to maximize those skill sets that I can then translate into another occupation. So once I got into a new occupation, really baseball was on the back burner, and I was just real estate all the way in, and then I got to thinking, I'm out here trying to get people (laughs) to use my real estate business where people are contacting me all the time about baseball. Because that is my background, and I, I have a lot of knowledge in it. And I said, well, these people want it. They want to know what I think. How about I just start giving it to them? And then that's kind of how the get your game right thing developed, getting phone calls, because my contact and information became public once I went into real estate. And then I said, well, you know, this is this could be a good way to not only give back, but to also start another business. So it was kind of a no-brainer, and, and we're doing the podcasts, and just talking to people, there's a need for it. I think there's a, a definite need for it. Yeah. Now you're working hard, you're in your career, and then you're injured. So a lot of people want wonder, obviously, you're going through physical rehab. How much contact do you have with the club? And what was it like being away from the team? And especially when you're working hard to try to get back? What was it like being injured, especially trying to get back to uh, playing uh, a sport that you're passionate about? Anytime you get injured, you, you, you take the baseball out of it for a little bit. 
your then your goal is to get healthy, right? So instead of your mindset being I need to get three hits today, it's I need to be able to to bend over after I get out of the shower. Because after I had my back surgery, it, basically your life, your normal day to day life is not the same. Like when you're when you're recovering from back surgery, you can't do a lot of things. You're in bed a lot, things like that. So that was that's a pretty realistic way to say, okay, I, this is what I need to focus on. And then once I'm, as far as the club's concerned, uh, once you get injured, they put you into a protocol uh, with your physical therapist and trainers. They sent me to Lakeland, Florida, to have my back surgery, and then I stayed down there. So I wasn't even in in Detroit uh, rehabbing my back. And then you're going through the protocol of let's get you healthy. Right. Don't worry about baseball. You need to be healthy before we can even think of that. Was it torture just being away from the game or was your mindset like, look, little goals, let's just try and feel better day by day. And that's what helped you get through. What was it like being away from the game? It wasn't great because mm-hmm. I'd done that my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I really love baseball. Baseball is a sport that I don't think there's another sport like it. Uh, it, it was a way for a guy like me, who's not the tallest guy, not the strongest, pretty average makeup to be able to play at a very high level, which, you know, uh, I just uh, Kurt David is uh, a a guy who's from Glory Days. He has a TV show, and we just had the discussion. He's six nine, and he had a chance. He played in Europe, some pro ball in Europe, and uh, uh, but my me being six foot, the odds of me making it in the NBA aren't great. You know, where he's six nine, he had a real shot. So, baseball is an equalizer sport. You see Jose Altuve, uh, but then you also see Aaron Judge. So guys on completely different spectrums who are the little guy all the way up to the big guy, and they're all competing on the same field. That's not common in sports. Where did you first develop your love of baseball? Take us through your early childhood, uh, your development of love, the love of sports. What sports were you into, and what teams did you gravitate towards if you were a fan of baseball as a kid? Uh, I, I have always been a fan of a challenge. So not even as much baseball-related. Sports was a good way to accentuate those challenges. I really enjoy when something is not easy, figuring out a way to do it. Like I, I, I taught myself how to play guitar. Uh, I do things. I like to cook. I do a lot of things that have a little bit of challenge to them. So in baseball, it was a good way. I was a kid. Now, if uh, you being a psychologist would have diagnosed me with ADHD, A A D D D A R D D D D D D D right? All the D's you had. All the H and the D's you had. I had every acronym probably. I was a very high energy kid. It was a good way for me to to release that energy in a positive manner, as opposed to going out and breaking stuff or whatever. So sports was really good for me to kind of focus and concentrate on those challenges and learning to become better. How do I get better at these challenges? And that that's what's always been a factor in my life that's helped me succeed at, at most everything I've done. It's attaching to the challenge, not so much. Be- it's baseball. That's great. I always loved the game of baseball because there's so much challenge in it. And as a young kid, obviously, you know, I'd watch guys like Manny Ramirez, uh, George. I'm from Kansas originally. So Kansas, the Royals were the team you know, Kansas City, Missouri, they're the closest team we had. But until I, I played my first game in Comerica, I'd only been to two big league stadiums in my life as a fan. And one time in St. Louis, and I think one time in, in Kansas City. So I'd only ever been inside of two two times of a big league stadium. The third time, I'm playing left field for the Tigers. And so you said that part of what you liked was the challenge. What was the early on challenges of baseball when you're, you know, early on playing maybe Little League or travel ball? What were the early challenges that you were seeing? The challenges, and I played all sports. Mm-hmm. I played football, basketball, baseball. You don't see that as much now just due to somewhat of the opportunities that kids have, things of that nature. 
But challenges that I liked back then was it's not me sitting in a classroom and having to learn numbers and reading. I was a very adventurous and outgoing kind of guy. The challenge to me was, okay, here's physical aspects to this, but I also have to understand the rules. I have to understand the way the game works and how can I get better because I don't like striking out. So how can I not strike out this time? Or, you know, hey, that fly ball uh, that the guy hit and I didn't get a good jump on it. Or And you can, you know this stuff at a fairly young age. I think most people, if you're really wanting to get better, you know, okay, I didn't get a good jump on that fly ball. But then doing those processes over time and getting better at them on, on a daily basis, you start seeing a little more success. Your jumps get better. You're hitting the ball better. I think that's where youth sports needs to stay. It's not about the outcome of the game as much as it, as it is the progress and let's build some character into these kids and make it a process and make it uh, something that they can look back on and say, you know, I really enjoyed this because I saw that I worked hard at it and got better. Cause I knew as I, once I figured out in sports, if you work hard at it and you get better, that's possible. That it was all downhill from there. I love that. I attach to that. If I work really hard, I'm going to get better. There's no way around it. It's the same way. And it, it didn't translate for me as much academically because I just, I hated the school setting. You know, I think a lot of our school settings are, are designed for people who don't have uh, that super energy mindset. And my, my leg just shakes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I'm on the go. I like to move. Yeah. The, the traditional school setting does not apply well for a person like that. Mm-hmm. So they would set me off in the corner and say, <laughs> you're distracting the class. Where really a lot of my learning was more the hands-on through sports and things like that. And and it is an issue because you gotta you gotta play to the masses. But I think the school system as a whole uh, caters better to young girls than to young boys. Makes sense. Most for the most part, young boys are learn better hands on, you know. And I think that that's something that sports gave me the opportunity to do. How'd you end up at Wichita State? How'd you get recruited? Um, at that point, now you're 18 years old. You're thinking about okay, what's next for me? Do I take this to the next level? What was that like uh, in the process of of uh, joining a college baseball team? So for me, I was going to join the military. Uh, my mom talked me out of it, like any mother is going to try to talk her out. But I was, I was a, a very hardworking, I could run through brick walls kind of guy in high school. And I was going to join the military. And my mom said, how about you just try the baseball thing? Because Wichita State did offer me a scholarship out of high school. Uh, I would consider myself at that time a very raw player. I wasn't as refined as other guys. And I wanted to play. So Hutchinson Community College offered me a scholarship too, and not a starting job, neither one of them. But basically, I, I saw the junior college as a better opportunity to play sooner. I didn't want to redshirt. I wanted to get in and play, just like we went back to, I'm a higher energy guy. I don't like sitting on the bench and waiting, right? So I went to Hutch Juco. Me and another guy were kind of split in time in right field. Uh, just kept working, got better. I was the starting center fielder, ended up being the starting center fielder my freshman year, then had a good sophomore year, then Wichita State was – Still still there, basically waiting, saying, hey, when are you ready for the scholarship? Took that scholarship. And uh, the the transition, every level that you play in is different. Uh, what you have to do is understand that when you come in, just because you're not the best player today or what they think is, don't let anybody label you. So I was always kind of labeled as a pretty average uh, junior. Oh, they would have said, you're an average junior college player. Then I was supposed to be an average Division One player at best. These are what, you know, people who rank talent and things do don't let those mindsets of other people affect you getting better on a daily basis 
At the time, were you aware of those reports? Did you kind of get a sense of what people thought of you? I think it's very clear when you don't get drafted your junior mm-hmm. year of Division One baseball that th- that's what they're thinking of you. Mm-hmm. Your tools aren't there. If if you saw a scouting report of me, and the problem, some of it is too, once one scout says something, they all kind of just fall into that. Gotcha. Nobody, it's really tough because you don't want to go out on a limb and the limb get chopped off behind you when everybody else is in the tree, right? So uh, once you get a label on you, it can be a little bit tougher to get it off. Now, I was lucky enough that uh, David Chad, the scouting director for the Tigers, is from Wichita. Mm. So I was playing in Wichita. Brent Kimnitz is uh, good friends with David Chad. So there was a, I, I got a break. I was going to get drafted my senior year regardless because I was doing very well. Mm-hmm. And I was a very good player. But I got drafted in the eighth round by the Tigers. I, I didn't expect to get drafted that that soon. But they saw me as a player that could fit into an organization uh, at that time for them. So they took me. And then basically... My, my development through the minor leagues, I broke my hand in my third professional game in low A. Uh, so then I went and rehabbed in the Gulf Coast League, which is the lowest level of baseball in America professionally. And I just went from playing a super regional in front of 10,000 people to the Gulf Coast League in Lakeland, Florida in August in 150 degree weather playing at one o'clock in the afternoon with no fans and uh, uh, fire ants on the ground. So I had to not only say I, I didn't complain about it, I killed it, right? So it had been very easy for me to be like, why am I even here? This is stupid. Uh, but in, as opposed to that, I just kept those same processes and that challenge mentality and just kept f- striving forward. Then I went to high A the next year because I did well in instructional league, double A, double A, triple A big leagues. And uh, this was a guy, I, and then even going into the big leagues, they said the best you'll ever be is a bench player, fourth outfielder max. Then all of a sudden you get discussions of Andy Dirks being the everyday left fielder, then the injuries kind of came in, but that's just shows any kid out there, whatever you're doing in life, baseball, you could be playing clarinet, right? Whatever you're doing, don't let other people tell you how good you can be at it. I think that's huge. It, we're in a society, people in general don't like overachievers. We just, most people don't. They like to keep everybody kind of, because it makes you feel a little better about yourself. Be an overachiever at what you're going to do and your life will have a better outcome. Yeah, I was looking at your stats in your junior year. I mean, you batted 320, 31 runs driven in, 19 steals. So it wasn't like you were, you know, putting up uh, awful numbers. And so you said that uh, you were surprised that uh, the Tigers were going to draft you in the eighth round. What was it like that day when you get the phone call? How are you then made aware that now you're member that you are a member of the Detroit Tigers organization? It it was something I didn't ex- I expected to get drafted at some point. I figured somebody would give me a try because I, I had a, a good senior year. I was a good, solid player all around. I wasn't anything fancy, right? And I'm a senior, so I have no leverage. I can't say I'm going to go back to college, you know. So uh, when the first day is like the first three rounds, I think at that time, first five rounds, and obviously I didn't get drafted then. We were actually in a super regional against Florida State. And I think the story goes something like that second day we're playing. I found out after the game that we were playing and that I got drafted because they, they drafted us while we were playing in the super regional. But I think it was goes something like, what round should we take? When when should we take Dirks? And then the the game was on, and I hit a home run, and they're like, this is going to be a good round to take him. Gotcha. You know, so the, that's kind of like the backstories. And then obviously it worked out well for for all of us. The injury thing happens. That's part of baseball. And I always say that anytime there's an injury, it's unfortunate, but it gives another person an opportunity. 
Now, one thing that you said was don't let anybody classify you, make your own goals. Now, a lot of young baseball players, they start off in the minors. They they, they work their way through single A, sometimes maybe even uh, semi-pro ball before they even get to the minors. What would you say to those that are listening that are like eight, 18 to 22 years old, they're playing baseball, and they might uh, embark on a journey to play minor league baseball? What was it like for you, and how would you um, describe that experience, and what are some tools to help you get through the minor league system? Because that can be complicated where you, know, you may think that you should be in double A, you may feel like they should be in different positions, but the minor leagues is a whole psychological experience in and of itself. Yeah, I would say to anybody, don't get ahead of yourself and don't get behind yourself. And with that, this basically means when when you're in double A, if you're going home every night and looking at what the guy above you in triple A is doing, you're already telling yourself that you should probably be there and you're thinking different things. You need to really concentrate on your game, concentrate and being a good teammate on the team, being a good teammate is going to help you achieve more as an individual. It's very hard for young players to understand these concepts of how uh, uh, other people around you being successful helps you become more successful. Uh, you see on any good good team, guy like Tom Brady is Tom Brady because he's got a whole bunch of highly competitive guys who are very good at what they do around him also, and that pushes him to succeed at a higher level. Uh, but don't look behind you either because if you look behind you, somebody's coming to get your spot. So if you think about it, when you go home and you're looking at that guy in front of you, what do you think the guy underneath you is looking at? Your spot. And he thinks he should be where you're at. So don't get caught into that trap of I should be here or this is where I need to go. Stay into the day-to-day process. The process that you should attach to is how do I get better on a daily basis? And I would tell guys this all the time in the minor leagues because they would be complaining about something happening in the big leagues and I should be there. I say, you have options here. You basically have two, the way I see it. You can either quit baseball and save yourself the headache of worrying about all this, or you can get better. And I promise you, if you play good enough for long enough, you'll make it to wherever you want to go. The key is consistency. So you, a lot of times you get a guy who's hitting 350 or 400 for the week, and all of a sudden he thinks he's the big. he should be in the big leagues because the guy in the big leagues is struggling a little bit at that time. Hit 350 for the next three months, and then maybe we'll have this discussion again. Make them be, call you up. Make them promote you. That's right. And don't don't look at small sample sizes with yourself. This has to be a process of seasons. So put together three or four good seasons in the minor leagues. Then you might have an argument. And then you'll get to the point where your confidence is good enough. When you do get to the big leagues and you do have a little failure, you know you can succeed. Because I, you see it. It's one thing to get to the big leagues. It's another thing to stay there. You see guys all the time get called up and do awful. They get called back down. They might not ever get another shot at it. They thought they were prepared and ready, but they were not, right? What were those bus rides like? I mean, those are times where you can connect with your teammates, share stories, learn about yourself and others. And some people say, look, man, those were some tough, tough rides after some games and things like that. Sometimes it can be a grind, but what, was the, what were the bus trips like for you in, 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 in your path in the minor leagues? In the minor leagues, until you get to AAA, a little bit in AA, but mainly AAA, it's mainly you're playing with guys who are aged pretty similar to you. Okay. So when I, at least when I was going through, you know, there wasn't, we weren't dealing with a lot of 18 year olds in double A. Okay. Uh, we were also, we're not dealing with a lot of 40 year olds in double A. Then you get to triple A, it's changed. But before from double A and before it's kind of like your group of buddies, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're in these crummy hotels, you're taking these long bus trips, you, you're eating terrible food and you're all doing it together. And there's camaraderie there. And most, for the most part, it's a pretty easy way to come together as a team because you're all in it. Some guys get jealous and don't want you to do good. Those guys always failed. 
that I saw. Anybody that was was jealous that another guy was succeeding always failed. He was too worried about other people and not worried about himself enough, probably. But uh, then once you hit AAA, you start playing with grown men. And that was a like, wow, AAA is much different. These guys have families. These guys, they're not going out and, and having a beer after the game. They're going home to their kids. You know, so that was a whole, a whole new mindset. And then in the big leagues, the same way. So really, once double A is kind of over, that's the last of what I would call the the college years, the yeah. camaraderie college years. Because you really go from college where you don't have any money mm-hmm. into the minor leagues. My first minor league paycheck was 1100 bucks mm. for the month. You know, nobody's wow. got money. <laughs> right. And we're all just kind of scrapping by. You got six guys living in a tiny apartment. And then you get to triple A and it's grown men. And that's when life kicks in on top of baseball. We uh, fast forward to May of 2011. You get the call up. How do you hear the news? And what's it like going from uh, the minors to the majors when you first get called up? Yeah, so I was doing well in Toledo. I was just doing my thing. You know, I was hitting well in Toledo, just playing ball. Uh, I was in big league spring training, and then they sent me down, which I expected. Uh, you can't you can't expect to take somebody's spot in spring training. I think there's always a couple battles, you know, that are maybe something's up in there, but for the most part. Whatever the people did the year before, if they're going to stick with them and they had a decent year, you can be an awful spring, uh, have an awful spring and still be okay. Uh, they kind of have the roster set. So I went knowing I was going to go to Toledo. I just did my thing in Toledo and was doing very well. And Maglio Ordonez broke his ankle. And I didn't know it at the time, uh, but I get a call from Phil Nevin. Uh, we just got into, I don't even remember what, I think it was uh, Charlotte uh, in AAA. And I get a phone call to my uh, hotel room. Hey, it's uh, it's Nev. You want to go to uh, come down and have lunch? And I'm like, what? Like he he's not he's never gonna take his player to lunch. Really, you know, we just don't. There's kind of that relationship, manager player relationship. I'm like, he wants to take me to lunch. That's strange. So obviously, I go down and he's like, I'm kidding. I'm not taking you lunch. You have to buy your own. But you are going to the big leagues, so get your stuff packed. And I was like, like today I'm going. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you're gonna get on a. a Bus, take the plane, whatever, you know, and get to the get to the stadium. Uh, their game starts at 7, and they need you there as a backup in case something happens. And I was like, cool. So then I get, get into uh, Detroit, and I don't play that day. They have my stuff ready, but walking into the clubhouse, and I'm sitting in the dugout in Comerica Park, and the big league game's going on, and it's like, wow. Yeah, that happened quick, <laughs> you know? So then it took me a couple of days before I got my first start because we had rainouts. So we had some few rainouts, and and then the guy that started pitching, the starting pitcher that day was a guy that had struck me out. The first three-strikeout game I ever had in pro ball was him. And I ended up getting a base hit, and then he picked me off. But it was pretty surreal. And for me, once I get into the game, like the background noise and the big leagues, every time they'd call, hey, announce, and this is your 2012 Detroit Tigers or whatever, the hair stands up on the back of your neck. You run out. It's a It's an awesome feeling. But once you settle into the game, it's another baseball game. Yeah, in that 2011 season, the Tigers made the playoffs as division champs, and you get to the ALCS. What was it like, that whole experience now, 2011 season, winning the division, and then playing a tough series versus the Texas Rangers? It was uh, definitely a good way to see what success is like at the, the very highest level. And all of the the kind of buildup throughout that whole season comes comes into uh, the playoffs, right? And the playoffs happens extremely fast because you're used to these long stretches of season. And all of a sudden you have a seven game series. That's a, you know, that's very short, a five game series. It's like it happens. Boom, 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 boom. And you're in the clubhouse celebrating. And it's like, whoa, that happened very quickly. Uh, And then 
the hard part about the playoffs is it's very micro focused. So as you're going through a season, you're sticking to basically it's the grind, what most people would call the grind, where it's the daily routines. You know, if you have a bad game, okay, your next game, you're going to have a good game. It's all going to even out. You get into the playoffs and you have a bad game. It's very microtized. Pitchers are very, very good with every single pitch is means something here. Where during the season they might have a mental lapse and they throw one, hang one over the plate, and you can hit it. Here, they're like, "I'm going to make every pitch perfect," and hitters are then concentrating a little bit differently. So it is. It's like uh, you take all that stuff. Every pitch matters. The game is actually a little slower during the game because you have more commercials. So that flows a little slower. And it's way more thought out and processed. How'd you handle the loss in the, in the ALCS? There's a time where you're going to lose. You're either going to win the World Series or you're going to go home not happy. Uh, for me, the way I always approach any of those circumstances is, is there anything we could have done differently? You think about that right away. So your first reaction anytime you lose a, ba- a baseball game or anything is, what could we have done differently? And when I look back, I look at it as, two of the best teams in baseball are going to play a seven game series. Half the time we would have beat them half the time they're going to beat us. And at that high of a level, it's hard to, to dig back and say, well, if we would have done this differently, we would have won the game. It, you, you can't, you, you just can't even look at it that way. What was your mindset going into the 2012 season? Uh, that was the first season. So I had a real, a pretty good rookie year, mm-hmm. you know, uh, overall I got, I stayed up for most of the time. Mm-hmm. I went to the Dominican Republic and did really, really well. Uh, then coming into spring training, I, I think I was the Grapefruit League batting title champion. I hit like 500 and something. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the battle between me and Cleet Thomas. Mm-hmm. And they made this big deal out of it. I, I outplayed him like bad. Like he hit like a buck 50 with like one home run because that was his big advantage is he was a very good power hitter. And he in batting practice, he would hit the ball out of the park every single time. I couldn't do that. And he was a very good outfielder, a good athlete. But overall, my baseball game, he had better skill set, mm-hmm. but my baseball game was better at that time. And it was funny because we're coming down to like the last few days of spring training, and I am outproducing him big time. And it's still up for debate. I'm like, really? Like, can't we just get through this and just put me on the roster and be done with it? But uh, ended, I ended up being on the roster, and me and Cleet were both on the roster to start with because they didn't bring up a pitcher uh, until a little bit later. So Cleet. It was still, so we started the season. We still didn't know who had the roster spot at the end because we were rolling with five outfielders. So this is what I'm telling like young people, no matter how good you're doing, you got to keep it up. You can't stop production and you can't stop getting better based on a little short period of success. You know, for me, if I, I could have, okay, I had the better spring training going to the big league season. Okay. I'm going to get the spot and shut it down. Well, as soon as you fell there, somebody else is going to come up behind you and take it. So that's anything like with your podcast, say, say you decide, you know, we've got our following and we're doing really well. Uh, we just need to take a month off and not put any, any content out at all. Your followers are going to be like, we'll see you. See you later. We'll, right. We'll go to the other person that's putting it out. Right. Exactly. So just because you've had success doesn't mean you can just stop and it's going to continue without you doing anything. Exactly. What was your working relationship like with the managers that you played for? Uh, a lot of times managers would usually like me as a player because mm-hmm. I just kind of put my head down and played. Uh, they knew what they were going to get every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, every kid or anybody that wants to be successful at anything, especially if you have leadership over you, the best break, and now that I have employees, the best thing you can give a leader is consistency. It's not always going to be perfect performance, but you know what you're going to get out of that individual on a daily basis. And and that's what I provided. I might not have got four, a couple hits every day, but I was always going to play good defense. I would run the bases well. 
Uh, I did a lot of the little things right all the time. So even if I wasn't productive, maybe hitting that day, I was productive doing other things. That gives a manager a lot of confidence to roll out. So really, they didn't have to say a ton to me. Like most of my managers just let me play, including Jim Leland. I think the, and people ask me this, what do you think about Jim Leland? And looking back on it, it makes you understand what a really good manager is, is one who knows to step in and win and when not to. It's as important when to know not to say something as it is to know when to say something. So then the things he would say had more meaning. Like if Jim, and he would, it'd be as simple as, hey, you need to stay back on that a little more. If, if he told me something, I knew that he saw something. Because he, he wasn't, he didn't do it often. He only did it when he saw, hey, there's a need to do it. And then when he did it, it's like, okay, I understand that. That makes sense. Yeah, a lot of people talk about the routines of baseball. How often does a manager speak to the to the ball club as a whole, and how often does he speak to you individually? Like you said, every once in a while if he sees something. But how often would you talk to a baseball manager? It depends on the manager. Okay. So most for the most part, unless things are not going well, you're doing your own thing. They're cool with, but if if you go on a little skid lose three or four in a row, something needs to be said or something needs to be addressed on the team, then the manager will step in and say, hey, we need to get this thing cleaned up. I don't know exactly what's going on, but we need to figure this out. Anybody got ideas? And maybe they'd take a player to say, hey, I think you know this is where we're struggling, one of the leaders on the team. And then usually the manager, because at the end of the day, your managers are in charge of helping guys produce to the best of their ability. Right. Really, that's all it is. Understanding the hardest part about managing, I think, is running the bullpen in the American League. You know, the National League, you got pinch hitters and some different things that happen more. But managing the bullpen is by far the toughest task for a manager on a big league team. Usually your your lineup is is fairly set. You know, the team this year is a little different because you got a lot of youth and you got some different things happening. But when I played, Austin Jackson would lead off uh, Tory's hitting two. Miggy's hitting third, Victor's hitting fourth. You know, it's like boom, 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 boom. Johnny's hitting sixth. So there wasn't as much thinking in that for him. But when it came to the bullpen, that's a that was a, our issue. And that was where I thought he did a very good job of knowing when to use guys, what situations to put them in to help them succeed. And then when it comes back to talking to him, he's not going to say anything unless he needs to. Because once you get to the big leagues, you're there for a reason. And you you shouldn't need coached as much. You still need to work on things. But once you hit the big league level, if you're needing serious coaching, you're going to go back to the minor leagues because they nobody's got time to, to to teach you how to catch a fly ball in the big leagues, right? If you don't know how to do it, we go to the minor leagues and figure it out, and we'll call you back up when you're ready. So you're in a clubhouse with Miguel Cabrera, Johnny Peralta, Victor Martinez, great hitters. What did you observe? What did you take away from watching them, especially you know on the field? Because that was the height of their powers when they were doing some massive things productivity-wise on the baseball diamond. Uh, some of the natural ability that those guys had. Miguel Cabrera is the perfect storm of a hitter. He's big, he's strong, he's flexible, his hands stay inside the ball, he can see very well. It's some of the stuff, I would take stuff away from them and, and implement it into my game, but some of the stuff I couldn't. Uh, I was talking to Miggy one day on the bench, and I'm like, because uh, he, he, he hit this guy's slider for a base hit to right, and it was a really nasty slider. And I'm like, hey, did you like, do you see that slider? He's like, yeah, you you know, you see the little dot out of his hand. And I'm like, I've never seen a dot out of yeah. his hand. You know, it's wow. Like, it's like, uh, it's a different ability level. Like, I never saw spin unless he really hung it, you know. But he he was able to like, he's like, yeah, he's kind of on the side. That's the slider. And I'm like, my vision's not that good, apparently. So some of that stuff is natural. Uh, but then also seeing their focus on a daily basis. Uh, uh, Victor Martinez had one of the most impressive seasons that I've ever seen as far as a hitter. So Miggy's got the most talent and is 
works his butt off to be a great hitter. But Victor, I think, has less talent, but still was able to put together really good seasons. At one point, uh, he had only struck out like 10 times going into almost halfway through the season. And to watch him get two strikes a lot and see it on a daily basis and how hard he fought each and every at bat and was determined to make that pitcher get him out, he's not going to get himself out. And when I say get yourself out, that means your mind wasn't quite there. You, you weren't quite focused. He took every single pitch with an extreme focus that reminded me I need to be doing the same thing. Did you enjoy being a professional Major League Baseball player in terms of not on the field, but off the field stuff, working in the community, talking to the media, the stuff that takes place that takes place off the diamond in terms of, you know, the professional nature of being a Major League Baseball player, representing a city, representing an organization? Was that, you know, something that you felt pressure or did you feel like, okay, you know what, I understand what the game is, I know how to handle it, and I'm just going to go be a professional baseball player? I always approached it as that's my job. Okay. Right. So it is, it's cool to get some recognition. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm walking down the street, people mm-hmm. would recognize, Hey, that's Andy Dirks. Some of it was good. And some of it was bad. If you had a bad game, they might give you a little razzin, mm-hmm. but that's just the fun of baseball and the fun of the of sports in general. But overall, Detroit is a very solid sports community. Uh, you can go throughout all the country and not find a better actual sports based fan group. We have all the big sports here. And it's funny to me, because I'm a small-town kid from Kansas. I live about 12 miles from a town of 1,100 people. And a kid from that small town of Kansas that grew up on a dirt road can be part of a family in one of the biggest metro areas in the world. And I think the reason Detroit's always attracted to me. Detroit, the fans always loved me. I think it's because I'm a kind of the blue-collar vibe that Detroit's built on. And that still continues to run Detroit, even after a terrible economic time. Detroit said, well, that's a tough time, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to put our boots on and get back to work. And I think that that shows the spirit of the city as a whole. So I, I really love that aspect of Detroit. I think every city would be different to play in. You know, New York is going to be different with that. But for, for what I did and seeing the love that Detroit gave me, I mean, I really enjoyed that part of it. It's nice when people love you, right? Exactly. And we talked about the fact that your playing career kind of got started off around 2008, around the time social media started to pick up, especially via Twitter, and the way the fans could interact with you and the way they could message you pretty much directly. And you had said that for you, you really stayed off of social media and you felt like it was basically when you did an evaluation pro versus con, the cons really outweighed the pros. Why? So basically I saw players getting in trouble on Twitter with their organizations on social media, on Instagram or whatever, you know, at the platform, the Facebook stuff, they would put out uh, an emotional tweet or an emotional thread that who knows, they, they were sitting at home and maybe had a few drinks and probably shouldn't have done it. And next thing you know, that guy doesn't have a job anymore okay. because he, he just, you know, said something to his team or you get fans on there who uh, fans or haters. And I was like, I'm not going to put myself through the stress every day of seeing negative stuff about myself. Because I already know that there's plenty of negative about me. I don't okay. need to be reminded that I was um, oh for my last 15 and Andy Dirks might be going to AAA and da-da-da-da-da. So I really just wanted to focus on my game. How can I get better? As opposed to bringing a lot of, the, lot of negative energy into my life. Now, I think uh, where it's headed now is actually better. We're getting better with it. And I really, you know, being an older school, I'm not an old school player. I like mm-hmm. technology. I think there's a lot of advantage in different things. But I put my head down and played more like Mike Trout. Mm-hmm. So he's not he's not glitzing glamour. He doesn't pimp home runs. Mm-hmm. But then you have guys that that are a little more that way, and it adds an excitement and an energy to the game. 
So I think that being able to express individuals can express themselves a little bit on social media, and that's okay. I think that's good for the game because people, fans like to interact with players. That's just uh, part of the, the beauty of baseball and part of the beauty of sports is they, they like to see them on a human level too. And you get to see that through social media for young kids, and it adds an excitement and an energy that wasn't there before because there, there's more access. Like, uh, you know, somebody will go on and pop a tweet off, and it's like you're, you're in their life which is pretty cool. Uh, so I think that that way it's going to, it's been very beneficial. Now, when I was doing it, it was still so new. We were the social media babies. There was guys that were doing it and getting in trouble. And then the next thing you know, they put out a, a policy, politi- pol- uh, yeah, political tweets and stuff mm-hmm. just got wild. And uh, every media outlet was attaching to uh, how can we destruct this and, and cause a fire. And, and then the next thing you know, in the press, there's, Tory Hunter's a, a homophobic, which isn't true at all, but they take out these things from a tweet or whatever mm-hmm. and and really break it down and then try to just terrorize a guy. And I saw that and I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> no thanks for me. Yeah, not not if I played now I would use it. Okay. I think definitely I would use it. And now you know, in a business I use it all the time. Understood. And you can follow Andy on Twitter at AndyDirks12. Definitely check out the Get Your Game Right podcast. He tries to put out weekly content talking about healthy mindsets and definitely sharing experiences and sharing his thoughts on the game's greatest hitters. Now, we'll leave you with this. What's your current thoughts about the current uh, state of the Detroit Tigers organization? Obviously, in a rebuild, uh, manager Ron Gardenhire had the team playing really hard early on in the season. Obviously, the challenges of the game have caught up with the team, but they're still playing hard. Uh, a lot of young talent in the minors that a lot of people in town are looking at. A great, great chance for a lot of starting pitchers, a lot of great arms in that organization. What's your stance? Uh, how, how much involvement are you in terms of peeking into what the Detroit Tigers are doing? Uh, anytime you do a rebuild, it's going to take at least three years. I mean, there's just no way around it. We depleted the entire minor league season when I was playing for them. We were getting rid of everybody to try to get the big names. Uh, the Illich family uh, definitely wanted to win a championship while Mr. I was still alive. So they were throwing out $20 million contracts per year like they were candy and getting rid of all the minor leagues to get one piece of talent that might get us the championship. So some of the contracts, like Mickey's contract, he's going to be 67 years old and still be a Detroit Tiger and getting paid $50 million. That contract was put into place because we wanted Mickey and we wanted to win then. Yeah. So some of this is going to take some time to play mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Uh, rebuilding the minor league system is an, is is a must. So really, the more we lose, the better off we'll be because we'll get better draft picks. And they're they're trading people for just draft picks. That shows you where the organization's going as a whole. We want to build the minor leagues up and understand that if we have enough young talent that plays together, that's kind of the new wave of baseball anyway. Mm-hmm. Get the young guys to play together up through the minor leagues, and then you have two or three years to win a World Series once they mature before you have to get rid of guys and can't pay them anymore. So that's kind of the way baseball is now. It's different. you know. Uh, there's not uh, the, the Red Sox versus the Yankees World Series every year where these guys just for whatever reason aren't aging because most of them are taking steroids at the <laughs> time, but they're like 40-year-old dudes out here playing – by the time now guys are only playing into their 33 and their bodies break down because they don't have stuff to take. And we, the, the talent is at such a high level and working out. I think we put way more strain on our bodies at a young age to try to hit milestones. Like guys need to throw 95. You can't throw 95 naturally. You better get in the weight room. But that also over time breaks your body down. It's not natural. Your natural throwing arm might be 88. You're forcing it to throw 95. The longevity of your career is going to suffer without some enhancement. So, but as a whole, the rebuild for the Tigers, it's going to happen. Great sports cities 
are great for a reason. You know, the Lions do go to the playoffs sometimes. Might not be a Super Bowl, but they're still uh, solid, right? Now, when will they win a World Series again? I hope sooner than later, but it's tough. Winning a World Series is very tough. And yeah. I was part of it in 2012. We lost uh, four straight. It's very tough to win a World Series. And the reason is you're playing against the other best team on the planet. And it, it really comes down to every piece of your puzzle has to be clicking. And ours was the bullpen. That's where we struggled when I was in Detroit. It was the bullpen. Do you believe the 2012 team, had they started the series, the World Series, maybe immediately after the ALCS would have won it? Because the time yeah, off, people we felt... definitely we would have definitely performed better because mm-hmm. we, we swept the Yankees and they went seven with the Cardinals. We didn't play for two weeks. We were in Comerica, an empty Comerica Park. We'd brought up kids from uh, Florida to come and scrimmage against. This is a game you play every day. Days off are, are rhythm killer, especially two weeks off. You know, Verlander comes out and gets shelled in game one. We're like, oh, this is great. Exactly. (laughs) I think that's been the talk around town is if just the team had played a couple days after that ALCS, we would have had a ring. But but that wasn't an option. Right. Maybe we should have let the Yankees beat us a couple games. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, 2018, which ball clubs have your eye in terms of uh, candidates to potentially win the World Series this year? I really like the Dodgers. I think that that's one of the funnest teams to watch in baseball. They got a lot of young talent. They got guys who you know go out and play the game, and I think that that they're kind of ready. I just watching them is fun. They, I I got them on my my Facebook tweet or feed just because I like seeing their highlights. They're an exciting team. We've had the privilege of having Andy Dirks in the office for the last hour, and I really get a good sense of your mindset. The path to your success is really having a good mindset, really being able to set goals and also accepting a challenge. And I think that's why um, having people like you come into the office, share these type of stories is really profound, really impactful. Definitely check out the work that Andy Dirks is doing. He stayed around town. He was a resident of Detroit at Andy Dirks 12. Get your game right podcast. Anything else you'd like to plug? Yeah, if, you, if if any of my social media outlets, you can just message me if you have questions about some of the stuff we talked about today or if you'd like to learn more. Obviously, get a hold of us, follow us. We're putting out tons of information all the time. We're putting out more and more Instagram, Facebook, everything. Without you guys, without knowing what you want to know or questions that you might have, feel free to ask them. We love questions. I want all the comments and feedback that I can get from everybody out there that might have a question about any of this. Yeah, and definitely if you have a million-dollar home, hit up Andy Dirks. Look up Andy Dirks Realtor. He definitely will take your phone call. That's right. (laughs) If you have a home to sell or you're looking to buy or sell, (laughs) get a hold of us, and we'll help you there too. No doubt about it. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate your time. Thank you.